0: With Daniel Minick. Well, hello there. This is Daniel Minnick. Welcome to Truth Espresso. I am your host, and we're going through a series of episodes looking at who Jesus Christ is and answering that question by asking questions Is Jesus like? Insert your favorite superhero here. And if you discovered the title of this episode, maybe you're looking for some Captain America swag and you stumbled upon this podcast episode asking the very strange question, Is Jesus like Captain America? Perhaps you were curious enough to listen in and see what this weirdness was all about or perhaps you're a faithful listener to Truth Espresso and this just happens to be the next weekly episode that you listen to whatever the case welcome But if you're just tuning in, it might make a little more sense to start from the episode Is Jesus Like Superman? And listen from there in this series because we're walking through some church history here and we're seeing ideas about Jesus from church history and comparing those ideas to superheroes, perhaps to help us understand these ideas a little bit if we can compare them to Jesus and the idea of divinity and humanity to see what is human nature and divine nature are like, how they relate to each other, and so we get to know Jesus a little bit more by knowing what he is not like, and so that's what this series is about, to see what Jesus is not like as these questions have been asked and answered in history. And so this episode is going to be part one of asking the question, is Jesus like Captain America? So why Captain America? Why did I pick this particular superhero? Well, I am going to answer that question in a little bit. But first, let's ask the question, who is Captain America? So, Captain America is a Marvel comic superhero that came out many years ago. It was one of the first ones, or early ones, in Marvel history. So, as Captain America comic books started to come out, the first issue came out in March of 1941. So, in case you didn't know, Captain America was actually created during World War II. It's not that the plot of Captain America was created with World War II as the setting, but this was actually the concurrent setting of when Captain America as a superhero was conceived. And, unlike a lot of other superheroes, Captain America seems to have a particular alliance. His outfit resembles the American flag with the red, white, and blue, and with the stars and stripes, and so Captain America seems to be this kind of persona, this kind of motif of what it meant to be an American, an ideal American, at least at the time, against the forces of evil brought about by the Axis powers of Nazi Germany and Japan and Italy. So, who is Captain America himself? How did he become Captain America in the story of the comics? Well, Captain America was Steve Rogers, a physically deficient volunteer enlisting in the military to fight against injustice. And Steve Rogers, what he lacked in physical abilities, he more than compensated with his big heart, and the military saw this as a positive attribute. Although he could not keep up with his companions in training... A certain Dr. Abraham Erskine, who had defected from Nazi Germany, uh, was a scientist, a biochemist, and he developed what he called a super soldier serum to try on one select candidate. He had enough that he thought might work. It was an experimental thing, and so he could manufacture more of this if he determined that this stuff worked on one candidate and this particular selected candidate happened to be Steve Rogers and unfortunately Dr Erskine passed away soon afterwards and with him the knowledge of how to reproduce the serum it's funny how that works out because we have to have one particular superhero who could be called Captain America and as uh, the villain on The Incredibles, the movie, said, if everyone is super, then no one is super. Something to that effect, but you get the idea. Of course, in the plot of a good comic, you're going to have one particular person with this Serum become the superhero, and of course it's going to be lost. And after Dr. Erskine passed away, many attempts over the years, according to the plot of the comics, there were many attempts over the years to recreate this serum, but all the attempts had failed. So it's interesting that the technology, the intelligence of this particular scientist uh, was unrivaled over the decades. Now in the nineteen fifties there was Captain America commie smasher because after world war two to keep readers interested in Captain America who is no longer just a hero of world war two He had to have new enemies to fight, and unfortunately for Marvel, Captain America, Commie Smasher, the series there, wasn't anywhere near as popular as the World War II hero originally that sold millions of copies, in fact, millions of copies per issue. It was quite a success in World War II. And now there was a little bit of a break, and in the 1960s, Captain America comics started to be produced again. And Captain America came back as he had fallen from an airplane in the ocean. So he had fallen from an airplane during World War II, and then it was presumed that he was dead. If, in fact, you watch the first Captain America movie, Captain America the First Avenger, it follows that plot line that he uh, crashes in the ocean from an airplane, an aircraft, and then he's frozen. So Captain America was frozen in the 1960s comics for about two decades in a block of ice. And then he was revived, kind of like Rip Van Winkle, to wake up years later consciously and see that some things had changed. And so in the 1960s, as culture had changed, the astute Captain America from the World War II era had to figure out how to adapt to 1960s culture. And now there were several different series of Captain America comics that have continued on since then with very few breaks. If you have watched the Marvel Avengers movies where Chris Evans plays Captain America, and if you have seen Endgame... Um, you would remember that at the end, um, Steve Rogers became a 90-year-old and passed off his shield and his role as Captain America to the Falcon. Well, that was not original for the movie. That same thing happened in the comic book series in 2014. So that's a little bit of historical overview of the comic series for Captain America. So, just what are Captain America's superpowers? Well, he's not quite like Superman or Wonder Woman or things like that. He's not an alien. He doesn't have the powers to shoot out things like lightning or heat vision. He doesn't really have the ability to fly. Um, Basically, his superpowers are advanced human abilities. So, with the Super Soldier Serum, it enables Captain America to be kind of a superhuman, and he can run faster than the best human, in fact. He can run a mile in less than a minute, which is at least, if not more than twice as fast as the crazy speed, uh, the top speed that has ever been recorded by other humans. He can also run for a very long time without getting tired. And what about strength? Well, he is stronger than the best human. In fact, he can bench press over a thousand pounds and consider that a warm up. He is also hyper resistant to noxious gases. And his mind is also enhanced. He has a keen mind for fighting techniques in various martial arts, and he has hyper-stealth and agility for moving, dodging, uh, using things as props. His body heals wounds better and faster than normal. And he can jump longer and higher than the best human if he gets a good running start, you know, runs fast and he can jump higher than the best of us. And so his superpowers are like very much enhanced human abilities but we can consider them superpowers. After all, if no human could ever have those kind of abilities beyond a super soldier serum changing them, then we can consider those superpowers a divine nature, right? So now let's compare Captain America to Jesus. I mean, of course, Captain America didn't have a ministry of preaching the gospel. He wasn't a wise sage. He didn't perform miracles of healing. But how was Jesus like Captain America? At least when we look at the ideas of humanity and divinity. Well, they are both a singular person, because if you remember, the previous episode in this series is Jesus-like the Incredible Hawk. When we dealt with Nestorianism, we see that the Incredible Hawk and Dr. Bruce Banner are like two persons. So, not only are they two different natures, each nature has its own controlling person, all vying for control of one body. So, unlike the Incredible Hawk, Captain America is one singular person. And, according to Christian orthodoxy, so is Jesus. And since we consider Captain America to have enhanced human abilities via the serum, it gave him superhuman abilities, so we can consider that divinity, if we will. And so, if Captain America is both human and divine, and Jesus is both human and divine, we can see that that is a similarity there that they both have. And, of course, Captain America is definitely not invincible. He does have a mortal body, but he can do super things. And so that we could say that about Jesus, obviously Jesus was crucified, he died on the cross, he had a mortal human body, but he also did super things like walk on water and raise the dead. And now Captain America was fully human apart from his divine nature. And we know that Jesus is fully human apart from his divine nature if we understand that the two natures of Jesus are fully intact. And so that's a similarity that they have, right? I mean, is Captain America one person as we acknowledge with two full and complete natures? Is that really true of Captain America? Well, let's ask the question now, how is Jesus different from Captain America? So, as we can see with a further look at Captain America and what he really is as a superhero, Captain America doesn't really have two distinct natures. The two natures are, in fact, mixed together. His human nature is altered by the super soldier serum. Remember that Captain America, as Steve Rogers, was kind of a frail youngster enlisting in the military. He was an artist, according to the comics, and he was not really soldier material until this serum injected into him changed his human nature such that it was superhuman. But the super serum isn't really intact as a nature unto itself. The two natures, as I said, are mixed together. His human nature is altered by the super soldier serum, and the super soldier serum chemically broke down and dispersed through his body. And so Captain America has properties of both natures in one combined resulting nature. The two came together, the two were present before the Union, but then when they came together, they ended up making someone who is kind of partially human and partially divine. Now, for this type of illustration, I could have picked from many different superheroes to explain this idea of kind of a mixed or fused nature, or I could have picked Spider-Man, and in fact, I might have failed to mention I had this idea of teaching about Jesus comparing him to superheroes before I was even aware of a book by a theologian by the name of Todd Miles, and he wrote a book called Superheroes Can't Save You. And he takes some superheroes to illustrate some things, and in fact he did compare uh, Superman to Docetism and Batman to what he called liberalism, which I took comparing him to Ebionism and Socinianism for the human-only Jesus. He actually illustrated Apollinarianism with the Incredible Hawk, but my idea of Apollinarianism was like Iron Man to demonstrate uh, the the sun driving around a human body and replacing the noose, the will, the mind with the Logos, the divine Logos, and so kind of inverting to make Iron Man just this visual illustration of how You know, the true person is driving around an incomplete nature there. And so, I picked Iron Man to illustrate Apollinarianism. Uh, Todd Miles picked The Incredible Hawk. But, you know, I figured The Incredible Hawk represents Nestorianism because you have the two persons there in the one body, and one of them's obviously human, one of them's obviously super or divine. So, I mean, that made sense to me, and I'm only recently become aware of this book, and so I looked at it. I just don't want to be accused of, you know, a plagiarism, but, you know, I became aware of it, and I uh, looked at it, and I listened to a pastor. Using this as study material and doing some sermons about it, and so I got more acquainted with Todd Miles' idea there, and so I could see how he used the Incredible Hawk for Apollinarianism, but I, I think I, know, I would prefer Iron Man for Apollinarianism, the Incredible Hawk for Nestorianism. But, for what we're going to talk about in this episode, part one, and then part two, is what will be called Eutychianism or Monophysitism. I'll explain those later. So, it's kind of the polar opposite of Nestorianism. Nestorianism, like with the Incredible Hawk, two persons with two natures, Eutychianism has one person. And the two natures are united in such a way that they're confused and mixed together. Basically, you end up with one nature as a result of the two coming together. And so I could have picked many different superheroes to represent this. Um, I could have taken Spider-Man, as Todd Miles did. I could have taken any of the Fantastic Four, the Human Torch, and um, I forget the names of the others, but there's a, an elastic guy and a, a rock guy, and you could see that it basically, okay, they're part human, they're mutant as a result of an experiment gone awry, and so they're kind of part human and part divine. I could have taken any of the X-Men, who are... Are mutants from birth uh, to show that, yeah, they're partly human and partly super. So, if you think of any of the superheroes who had some kind of radioactive experiment or some kind of accident that resulted in altering their human nature into a mutant or demigod such that, okay, you now have one changed nature that is both partly human, altered human, and partly divine, you would have this illustration— but I picked Captain America in particular because his superpowers were less physically visible until he demonstrated them, kind of like Jesus. So an elastic person or a rock person or, you know, some kind of mutant where you have like visible Differences with humanity, you know, I, I think uh, Captain America is probably the best illustration of this fusion of two natures into one. An altered human nature that you might be able to say, yeah, it's, it's human-ish, uh, it's, it, it still retains humanity, but it's changed and so that's why I took Captain America. I also picked Captain America because, uh, he happens also to be a member of the Christian podcast community where Truth Espresso is also a member podcast. So, let me plug the Christian Podcast Community at christianpodcastcommunity.org. And that is managed by Andrew Rapaport, who hosts several podcasts, including The Rap Report, uh, Apologetics Live, and Theology Throwdown, which you will see me make some appearances there as well. But what do I mean that Captain America is a member of the Christian podcast community? Well, you might have heard me mention Chris Evans, who was the Captain America in the recent Marvel movies, but Captain America has another identity, another Chris. Uh, This happens to be Chris Hanholtz. Now, if you go looking for movies with Chris Hanholtz in them, you're not going to see Chris Hanholtz there. Chris Hanholtz co-hosts a podcast, called voice of reason radio and so chris Hanholtz and his uh co-host richard story uh, host a podcast called voice of reason radio and you can find it uh, you can find the home site for it at slave to the all one word slave to and what's particularly interesting about Chris Hahnholtz is that he will dress up sometimes as um, Captain America. And uh, a funny thing recently is what happened, I guess, during a uh, Twitter conversation with Dr. James White of Alpha and Omega Ministries. Um, it came up that Chris Hahnholtz had never seen the movie Elf now not to invoke the ridicule of dr james white i fall into that camp as well i think i've only seen a few little pieces of it i haven't sit and watched the movie the elf um but apparently dr james white likes the movie the elf and made fun of chris Hanholtz for not seeing that wonderful movie and so he decided to send him a birthday gift so dr james white may an elf doll <laughs> to uh, Chris Hanholtz and um rich story the co-host and uh chris Hanholt's family were all in on it to make sure that chris got this birthday gift and of course chris Honholtz will then uh proceed to treat this doll as a demon doll he's posted pictures of the elf doll doing things as if he were alive so it's it's pretty funny um i recommend that you listen to um a recent episode of the voice of reason radio so you can get the scoop on this uh, funny development here and the episode is entitled dr james white and his creepy elf doll and i will provide a link to that episode as well as a link to voice of reason radio in the show notes and this is where you see the picture of Captain America for this episode coming from. Because Chris Hanholtz is a really neat and amiable guy, and so I figured I would jump out of my comfort zone a little bit and tweak the logo to show him as Captain America. So, definitely check out uh, Voice of Reason Radio with Chris Hanholtz and Rich Story. Check out their cool show to strengthen your faith and challenge your walk with God. And, of course, maybe laugh a little bit along the way. They're really nice, funny guys. So... Moving on here, who in history taught that Jesus was kind of like Captain America? Well, now we move on from Nestorius of the Incredible Hulk idea to a guy by the name of Eutyches, Not to be confused with Eutychus, who was um, a guy who fell asleep during the Apostle Paul's sermon, fell out a window and basically died, and Paul brought him back to life pretty quickly there. This is not the same guy. This guy is Eudicase. He was an Archimandrite over a monastery of about 300 monks in Constantinople. So an Archimandrite basically was an overseer of a bunch of bishops or over a, a monastery, a monastic order here. Yes, I know, uh we as Protestant Christians uh, don't many of us don't really like the idea of <laughs> monasteries and we don't see anything like that in the Bible. Yes, uh that's a topic for uh, another time perhaps if we look at some of church history related to how the monasteries began. Yeah, I I personally don't think it's it's represented as anything scriptural there, but, you know, let's just look at history and accept the way things were in history here. So, the bishops of this time recognized Eudicase as not being very learned in theology, So, obviously, Eutyches did have his pedigree in monastic life, so he held this position as an Archimandrite over this monastery in Constantinople for about 30 years. Now, Eutyches claimed to follow the teachings of Cyril of Alexandria, if you remember from the last episode, Cyril of Alexandria was basically the good guy in the story, although you know we seem to have a little bit of pity on Nestorius, and Cyril was kind of a a thug in a way. <laughs> But, doctrinally speaking, for the controversy over Nestorianism, even if Nestorius himself was misunderstood, um, we believe that Cyril of Alexandria at least taught correctly, the teachings were correct, even if his actions were not really kosher. But Eutyches claimed to follow the teachings of Cyril of Alexandria, and so he was a good opponent of Nestorianism. Eutyches focused heavily on a statement that Cyril of Alexandria used against Nestorius that said that Christ had one nature, one hypothesis. Now, of course, if you remember from that last episode, and as of course I keep saying, if you remember from the last episode as if you had listened to it, so consider that a recommendation to listen to the last episode uh, in the series, Is Jesus Like the Incredible Hawk? and consider that a recommendation to listen to all the Is Jesus Like superhero episodes in the series. But if you remember from that last episode, Is Jesus like the Incredible Hawk, some words were undergoing changes in meaning, words that had to do with person and nature. And Eudicase understood orthodoxy against Nestorianism to be that Jesus had one fused nature as a result of the Incarnation. All he knew was that he was not an Arian and that he was not an Nestorian. Uh, therefore, one nature that was somehow both divine and human must be the truth, according to Eutyches. So now let's get into what he taught uh, that we call in history Eutychianism. Now, Eutychianism is a form of what is called monophysitism. If you figure out the parts of the word, you would see why. Mono or monos meaning one, and physitism or physis or physics or whatever meaning nature. So, monophysitism is the teaching of one nature, that Jesus has one resulting nature. Who we know is Jesus of Nazareth as both human and divine, somehow the human and divine are together one resulting nature of the Incarnation. So, in monophysitism or Eutychianism, Jesus has what's called one theanthropic nature, or one divino-humano nature, as Fred Sanders, the Trinitarian uh, theologian, will call it. So, Jesus has one theanthropic nature rather than two distinct natures. So, what is this one nature? How do we explain what a one nature would be if it's both human and divine? So, if we start with the Logos, who is fully divine, and then you add this human nature to it, and but the result is one nature, what do you have? Um, in the Latin, as, as the opponents of this called it, they said it was a tertium quid, or a third thing, um, which is a term used, Used from alchemy. So, you have the combination of the two being a mixture that is neither of the sources fully intact. So, you start with two different things, two completely different things, and when you combine them, and if they're one resulting thing, they're kind of a mixture or confusion of the two. So, in some ways, if you start with a divine nature and a human nature, the result is a demigod. <laughs> So, to visualize this, just think of the many reboots of the Superman story where eventually they always finally jump the shark. At some point in the plot, Lois Lane finds out that Clark Kent is Superman. At first, Superman has to worry about a domino effect of others finding out his secret identity. But, on the other hand, this frees him up to pursue a romantic relationship with the fragile human woman with which he has had a secret crush for a long time, just as she has had a secret crush on Superman. And then the show later jumps the shark as Lois Lane and Clark Kent get married or at least live together in some way. And of course, we have to forget the idea that Superman is not human and is an alien from another planet and accept the idea that this alien from Krypton and this human can somehow have children together. And then we can speculate over what kind of creature the child would be. Uh, Will he or she have no superpowers, have different superpowers, have half the superpowers of the dad? Now, let's get out Gregor Mendel's Punnett Square from genetics and figure out the possibilities and factor in any dominant or recessive genes. Okay, so you get the idea. But if Superman is divine and Lois Lane is human, then we intuitively think their child would be like a demigod, part divine and part human. We have examples of this idea in Greek mythology and Roman mythology with Hercules being a demigod who is part human and part divine, and his part divinity is his amazing physical strength. Now, Eudicase wasn't suggesting that Jesus was like a demigod in the sense that the Logos and Mary somehow bore a child together like like they were married somehow. But, you know, this idea of Superman and Lois and having a kid just gives us a, a mental picture of how to understand the idea of Jesus having one nature that's like a fusion or a mixture of the two. We have to speculate, well, how do they relate? And how are they reduced in some way? Like how does one nature replace parts of the other and so on? How do they work together as one nature? Also consider that these two natures aren't necessarily even with each other. Our erring friend Eudicase here reasoned like anyone probably would, starting from a one nature premise. Because think, since the divine nature is much bigger and much more significant and much more powerful than the petty little human nature, um, Eudicase naturally understood what this would entail when you combine the two. Eutyches taught that the human nature dissolved into the divine nature of Christ like a drop of wine or vinegar or honey in the ocean or sea. However, we translate what he said. It's basically like a drop of something in a very large body of water. But think historically about the problem this would be. Wasn't one of the first heresies about Jesus in church history the Gnostic idea of docetism? You know, the Superman question, the first episode we addressed in this series. Although Eudicase acknowledged two full natures at the Incarnation, his reasoning meant that the Incarnation just demolished anything meaningful about the human nature of Christ and effectively resulted in a form of docetism. So, what did Eudicase propose? And really, the difference between the Orthodox position about Jesus and the Eutychian position about Jesus was really one preposition. So, in Orthodoxy, the person of Jesus is in two natures. But according to Eudicase, he is of two natures. So, he didn't retain two distinct natures under the one person. He was of two natures. The result of two distinct natures become one confused, admixed nature that is a third thing, a different thing, a product altogether. Now, Eusebius of Dorylaeum, if you remember from the last episode, the guy who one generation ago protested what Nestorius had taught, later was protesting what Eudicace was teaching from the extreme of the other side. So, this bishop Eusebius seemed to have a balanced view. This resulted in Eudicace having to explain himself at a council in his hometown of Constantinople. Now, Flavian, who was the bishop of Constantinople, then held a synod or a a small local council of bishops in Constantinople uh, late in the fall of 448 AD. And Eutyches himself refused to come. His excuse was that he had duties in his monastery over which he was the Archimandrite over about 300 monks there. So, according to Eudicace, he had a vow to keep. Yet, the charges against him eventually proved to be so compelling that Flavian demanded Eudicace to show up and deal with his charges. Eudicace finally conceded and showed up to the council toward the end of it. Now, the elderly Eudicace refused to budge on his beliefs. He firmly held to one nature in Christ. The bishops concluded that Eudicase was a heretic, and they deposed him from his position over the monastery. Now, Leo I, known as Leo the Great at this time, who was the Bishop of Rome, was upset that this council didn't defer to his judgment. He wanted some input on it. Uh, He claimed that Eudicase was mostly ignorant and could properly be restored if he came to his senses. Now, Eutyches, having been deposed and having his reputation smeared, sent a letter to Emperor Theodosius II requesting a more official council to restore his reputation. Apparently, Eutyches felt that the Synod in Constantinople, his home city, wasn't worth attending, but a larger one would be now that the circumstances um, proved to be so. The next year, in the fall of four forty-nine, the emperor, Emperor Theodosius, convened a council at Ephesus to resolve the matter and try Eutyches. Now, remember from the last episode that I've mentioned quite a few times here—it's kind of a a, a background, a historical background to this one because it was—it's this is less than twenty years later. So, remember from the last episode that the third ecumenical council, the council of Ephesus that condemned Nestorius in 431, were dealing with the same city of Ephesus here. So, there's going to be a bias here. Now, a second one at Ephesus would happen in 449, so this is only 18 years later. This time, it was dealing with the opposite end of the spectrum from Nestorianism. Rather than splitting Jesus into two persons, this is dealing with a position that's uniting his natures into one fused admixed, mixed, confused nature. And Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, would preside over it. Now, think, I mentioned that Ephesus still had, of course, (laughs) a lot of opposition to Nestorianism. Uh, 18 years prior, they dealt with the Nestorian controversy. Do you really think that they're ready to accept an opponent of Nestorius as also being a heretic? Emperor Theodosius himself had his beef with Nestorius before. He was in favor of Cyril of Alexandria. He was so opposed to the idea of Nestorianism that he was sympathetic to the monophysite idea that Eutyches was teaching. Now, Leo, the bishop of Rome at this time, was upset over the swift council at Constantinople, the synod there, and was happy that another council was happening that might give Eutyches a chance to make his case and change, if necessary, and... This time, Leo sent uh, some legates or representatives to represent his view there that Eudicase was wrong, but to try to be less harsh on him. However, since the emperor was sympathetic to monophysitism, he seemed to stack the deck at the Second Council of Ephesus in favor of Eutyches. And with Dioscorus of Alexandria presiding, uh, Dioscorus definitely had his sympathies for monophysitism. So, Dioscorus... Think of him a lot like Cyril of Alexandria 2.0. Like, if Cyril of Alexandria was a rough-and-tumble type guy, Dioscorus was even more so. And if Cyril was opposed to Nestorius' teaching and wanted to try to stack the deck against him, Dioscorus was even more so. And if Cyril was willing to use violence to get his way, Dioscorus was even more so. So, at the Second Council of Ephesus in 449, Eutyches got his day in court. He claimed to hold to the faith recognized at Nicaea and Ephesus. Uh, Eutyches accused Flavian of stumbling over Eutyches' words and twisting them. Uh, Eutyches also firmly stated that he believed in one nature of Christ— Of course, this will later be determined to be heresy, which Eutyches would not budge from, but it seemed to be allowed at this council. Flavian and anyone opposing Eutyches were denied any standing to judge the proceedings or to vote or to present much of a defense. Uh, Leo of Rome had written a letter to Flavian about uh, Eudicase, what he taught, and what he believed to be the truth of the two natures of Christ. Leo sent a letter addressed to Flavian, and he wanted his legates, his representatives, to read this at the council here in Ephesus. But Dioscorus, the patriarch of Alexandria, who was presiding over the council, refused to let Leo's letter to be read. Instead, the council read a letter from a guy named Barsumus, who was a monophysite monk at Eutyches' monastery. Hmm, biased much? Flavian and Eusebius of Dorylaeum... You know, remember Eusebius of Dorylaeum from the last episode. He was the bishop who originally accused Nestorius in the first place, but Flavian and Eusebius of Dorelium would be the defense at this council against Eudacase, but they weren't allowed to present much of a defense. In fact, some of the bishops shouted, Burn Eusebius! (laughs) At one point, reportedly, Dioscorus himself and the monk Barsumas violently smacked Flavian. So this court, this, uh, this very stacked council here, seemed to be like a, an apparent kangaroo court, and it determined that Eudicase was orthodox, much to the chagrin of Flavian, Eusebius, and their supporters. Dioscorus then threatened all the opponents with violence if they dared to object to the ruling. One of Leo's legates named Hilarius, not the word hilarious like funny, but you know, get rid of the O, you have his name. Hilarius shouted contradicitor to express that Leo would not agree with the sentence that this council pronounced. Uh, in fact, Dioscorus arranged to have about a thousand mercenary monks waiting outside the church building where this council was being held. If Dioscorus's wishes had resistance, Dioscorus would then summon the monks to take care of business. So, you know, <laughs> you think of the quiet, uh, fragile little monk in the monastery. These monks were, you know, they had some muscles and they had some will to do violence if necessary. As Dioscorus began to read the edict against Flavian and Eusebius that sentenced them as heretics, some bishops pleaded with Dioscorus against doing that. But Dioscorus would not have it. He then ordered his army of brutal monks to flood into the building to take out Flavian and the rest of the defense. As there was an altar of ministry there in the, in the church building, Flavian then ran to it and clung to it to plead for his life. Uh, if you remember from the Old Testament, an Israelite fugitive would grab the horns of the altar for protection against a violent sentence. But Flavian's gesture would not be honored in this case. The monks then pulled him off the altar and punched and kicked him to a pulp and later they eventually flogged him. So Eusebius of Dorylaeum was also deposed. Flavian was deposed and passed away soon afterward from a lack of care. He basically died from his brutal wounds there. Um, Flavian's replacement to be bishop of Constantinople was a guy by the name of Anatolius, who was a deacon, a friend of Dioscorus, and a monophysite himself. So, if we look at the history of bishops of Constantinople, uh, Constantinople had Nestorius, And then it had someone who was orthodox, um, and then later now have a monophysite. So, we can see how the schools of Alexandria and Antioch had their justified reasons historically speaking to view Constantinople as a seat of politics rather than an historical commitment to truth that could be traced back to something significant like an apostle in the case of Antioch or a long-held center of learning like Alexandria. So, as a result of the Second Council of Ephesus that was very much stacked in Eudice's favor, Eutyches got to waltz out back to his monastery and resume his position that had been briefly denied him by the Synod of Constantinople. Now, Hilarius, the legate for Leo, who had objected that Leo would not approve of the sentence here, barely himself escaped from the mobs, and he had to take a very covert roundabout route back to Rome. He managed to gather some letters from Flavian and Eusebius that were appealing to Leo with him. And so when Leo, the bishop of Rome, got wind of what had happened, he was not very happy because he wanted this council to be fair to Eudice, but also to support the truth. And what happened was a council that was stacked in Eudice's favor and didn't allow uh, the defense to happen. And so when Leo got wind of this, he nicknamed the second council at Ephesus Latrosinium or Robert. Council. And so, that brings us to the end of part one of answering the question, is Jesus like Captain America with Eudicase teaching the idea that Jesus was like Captain America, basically a divinized human, a humanized divinity, a kind of a combination of two natures there into one nature. And part two, we're going to look at the resolution of this mess. We're going to look at the Council of Chalcedon in 451, and see how the tables uh, start to turn against Utica. So, if you are excited about this, and I hope this history is a little bit of interesting, then stay tuned. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso.